Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It's Lon Seidman, and it's time once again for your weekly wrap-up. And we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today, as we always do. I've got some channel growth tips I've seen from my Snippets channel we'll talk about. IBM acquires Red Hat. AT Games has a minor scandal going on, and they really don't care what you think. We'll talk about that in a second. Motorola to sell DIY repair parts to iFixit for their smartphones. There's also some favorable copyright changes for people that do like to fix their own stuff. Mister is a great new FPGA platform that is really growing quite rapidly. We'll talk about that. YouTube premieres and what it means for my channel and your viewership and upstream bandwidth issues that continue to plague me here in the home studio. Lots to cover. Let's get to it. And I want to begin by thanking our newest members here on the channel. We've got a lot of different ways to support the channel. And uh, Yaro Tizvik here, uh, subscribe via the YouTube membership program. I want to thank Yaro and everybody who's been contributing to the channel on an ongoing basis, along with everyone who watches on an ongoing basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. And we don't have an advertiser this week, but we do have a non-ad for Rugged Ridge Maple Syrup. This is something my brother is doing. He's up in Vermont. And he's got a really neat process for developing delicious Vermont maple syrup. He pulls uh, all the sap from the trees that he has on his property. uh, But he's using a wood-fired furnace to power the stove that makes the syrup. So everything is sustainable on his farm. A really unique taste to this syrup. It's delicious. I uh, am biased, of course. But I think if you are looking for a good gift idea for the holidays, he's got a lot of good maple syrup to sell you. You can check it out at lawntv slash Rugged Ridge. Now let's take a look at the week in review. We had an unboxing of the C930 2-in-1 from Lenovo that we'll be reviewing later this week. Uh, We also unboxed and set up the Cavo Control Center. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And we also unboxed the Lenovo C530 Cube Mini Gaming PC. And on the main channel, we reviewed both that gaming PC and the Cavo Control Center. And that Cavo thing was really intriguing to me because, you know, the tech press was just going nuts over this box when they announced it. Uh, earlier this year. It started out as a $400 product. It had wood grain and eight HDMI inputs on it. Uh, And then they quickly pivoted now to this very low-cost device, $99 with four HDMI inputs. But it was very quirky. I couldn't get HDR to work properly. I couldn't override what it was detecting for my television. I found that their subscription service that cost $2 a month or $20 a year was very lacking. It was, uh, it tries to kind of consolidate all your content so you can uh, select a movie you want to watch and it will find it on whichever box is plugged into it that has it. Uh, but it doesn't go far enough. It didn't detect the stuff I already owned and it just didn't feel all together there for the uh, $20 a year they're asking. Uh, but if you don't do the subscription, it actually works okay as a universal remote control. So it, for $99, bucks, i am not all that uh, disappointed with it. But again, I just don't know why the tech press was so nuts about this thing. It really doesn't feel like anything all that great. But you can watch the review and make up your own mind on that. And then we also looked at the Samsung X- X5 portable SSD. 
Uh, this is a Thunderbolt 3 NVMe drive, and uh, it's generally uh, as quick as it would be if you had that NVMe in your motherboard, but the thermals are an issue with it, so it begins to throttle back the hotter it gets. So if you're writing to it constantly, uh, you might see uh, over the course of a large file transfer that performance degrading as it thermal throttles to get down to a speed in which it won't overheat. So it's not as good as if it was plugged directly in, but it's uh, not bad for a portable SSD and certainly the fastest one we have ever tested. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind, and this is week 88 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. Uh, on Saturday night, I was on Smoke Monsters Live Telethon for the Mr. Project. We're going to talk more about Mr. in just a second, but it involves porting over classic computers and gaming systems and arcade machines over to FPGA for a very accurate replication of those original experiences. And there's a lot of developers working on this for uh, nothing, really. They're just kind of volunteering their time to get these uh, things working in FPGA. And Smoke Monster held a telethon where I think he eventually raised about $1,500 to uh, give these developers something for all the work that they are doing on this project. You can check it out at the link you see on screen. I appeared uh, on with some folks from Retro RGB as well as My Life in Gaming. Lots of fun. Definitely check it out. Now, I wanted to show you this chart from my Snippets channel. This is where we take portions of this show and break them out and upload them into a more search-friendly form because this show is very long and if somebody's looking for a topic we cover, uh, this likely won't get recommended in search. This show is really for subscribers. Uh, the Snippets channel is a good way for some of this stuff to get surfaced and have a slightly longer life. And you'll see that the, the uh, viewership on the Snippets channel is increasing quite a bit. Uh, we're almost to 1,000 subscribers now and we got very serious about uploading content throughout the week right around here. And you can see that really made a big impact in watch time on the channel. First, we're uploading more, uh, but also I think it's just signaling to YouTube that we are a regular channel here that you should uh, experiment with in your algorithmic presentation to viewers. And I think if you are starting out on YouTube, uh, really take a look at this because the more you stick with it, uh, the more views and watch time you're going to get. And this channel now, after about two years, is finally close to the monetization threshold. So uh, really, if you are out there and getting discouraged because you're not seeing a lot of viewership, uh, make sure your videos are highly search optimized. Make sure the title very accurately describes what's in the video. Put together some decent thumbnails. And I think uh, this is the kind of performance you should see over time. And just keep tweaking things until you got it down. Uh, but again, I think there's a lot of opportunity on this platform for folks who really uh, buckle down, stick with it, and get your content up there. And it looks like we're seeing that on our Snippets channel now, too. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And this is a huge story that broke today. Uh, IBM is acquiring Red Hat for $34 billion, with a B. That is a huge amount of money. Shareholders are a bit uh, nervous about this. The stock is now at a nine-year low, according to thestreet.com. I checked it this morning. It's still on the decline. Uh, and Moody's is warning about the credit rating for IBM. So this might actually impact their ability to borrow money for other projects moving forward. I'm not sure what this is going to mean for Fedora. I looked around this morning to see if there's any indication as to what IBM plans to do with the open source operating system. Nothing was talked about. It's probably too early for that. Uh, my gut would be that they keep it because it's such a big part of their enterprise uh, systems because they're developing things for the open source side on Fedora, which then make their way into their cloud and enterprise products. And I'm guessing IBM would keep that 
uh, structure in place. But I think the bigger question here is what happens to Red Hat and its developers, because if the quality of Red Hat's developers declines, maybe some cash out, maybe IBM tries to find cheaper labor in other parts of the world, uh, that could impact what Fedora is like moving forward. But again, we don't know until uh, probably this acquisition gets finalized and we get a year or two into IBM ownership. But this is a big story and apparently a uh, very big risk that IBM is taking here in spending this much money on Red Hat. Red Hat's market cap, I think, was about $20 billion. Uh, certainly no uh, chump change there, but they're paying a pretty hefty premium to acquire the company here. So we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens with this as the year progresses. Now, this next story is about AT Games and why I think they don't care what you think. Uh, they manufacture a lot of these little mini retro game consoles. In fact, they kind of innovated this idea uh, long before any, the NES Classic Edition came out, for example. Uh, so what they do is they go out to these video game license holders like Atari and Sega and Bandai Namco. They license the IP and produce products that look a lot like the originals did to attract customers shopping at retail. They've got a tremendous retail presence. They're in Walmarts and drugstores all over the country here in the United States. They are everywhere and they're cheap. So if somebody's walking by, uh, they see a Pac-Man thing and, oh, I know somebody that likes Pac-Man. Let me pick this up for him. Why not? It's a cheap little gift I can give and they might really appreciate it. And they're, you know, they're okay. The, the emulation stinks, but they are kind of fun to play around with. I think the Atari flashback console is probably their best product, if that's saying anything. Uh, but the other ones really haven't been all that great. Now, the other day they uh, sent a review unit of their new Blast console to John Hancock, who was one of my favorite YouTube creators. He's a stand-up guy, very well respected, not only here on YouTube, but also among the game collecting community. He's got one of the largest collections of retro games in the world, and he is a good, good guy. And AT Games sent him the new Blast here with Pac-Man on the cover to have him review it before it was released. And when he did his review, it looked pretty cool, actually, for an AT Games product. I was surprised. It was running the actual arcade ROMs uh, for Pac-Man and Galaxian and a bunch of other games that he demonstrated. And for the price, it was looking like it was something I might actually pick up and maybe review here on the channel when it came out. And I'm glad I didn't because John had to post up essentially a retraction video not for something he did incorrectly, but for something the company did incorrectly. Because what happened was when they actually shipped the product to stores, it was not running with the actual arcade games. They instead replaced all the arcade games with NES ports of those arcade games, which are not as good as the originals, of course. And they didn't tell John that they did it. So here John has this video out, and apparently what he was sent was not what consumers receive in the same box. And I think that is just the most horrible thing you could do to a stand-up guy like John, but also very bad to do to consumers as well who might be searching for information about this product and will not be getting uh, what AT Games indicated they would be getting. And they uh, went out on Twitter to folks that were asking them about this to say, oh, well, we had a manufacturing problem and we switched everything around, but they didn't tell anybody this. They didn't tell John this. And then they started having some of these uh, snarky uh, responses to people that were criticizing them on Twitter. They were blocking a bunch of people and uh, not being very nice to those that they did not block. You can see more at Kotaku here at the link that you see on screen here. But ultimately, they don't care what you think because they sell product and they sell a lot of it. Their market really are not the people that watch reviews of their products, which makes me wonder why they even send out review units in the first place. 
uh, but rather for those shoppers who are walking down the aisle and see Pac-Man on the box and decide, hey, this is cool. I'll pick this up for 40 bucks and give it to somebody. And that's how they make their money. And the license holders that are licensing these products out to AT Games are making a little bit from it too. And they have no risk in that game at all because they don't have to produce the hardware or do anything other than collect a commission on every unit that is sold. So I think who does listen and care about what you think are these license holders who need to hear, I think, from all of us that, look, AT Games is really tarnishing your brand here. This is not a good uh, thing for Bandai and Amco to have where a product has been misrepresented to consumers and they also uh, impacted the reputation, perhaps, of a very well-respected YouTuber and game collector in the process. And as a result, I think it's not just a matter of not buying their products, which most of us don't do anyhow, but maybe writing to some of these license holders to hold AT Games responsible for some of this behavior, because this is not good to do a bait and switch on customers like this. And also for retailers to know about this too. Walmart certainly doesn't want their customers to go away feeling cheated either. So I think those are the folks that do need to hear from people because clearly AT Games doesn't care what you think. But in more consumer-friendly news, it looks like Motorola will be allowing you to fix your own smartphone and they're going to be selling official parts to iFixit so you can do that. Uh, You can see more on the iFixit blog right there and I think this is a uh, great development. Uh, One of the things that I've liked about Motorola phones is that they've been trying to be a little more friendly to consumers and that they've got phones that are inexpensive that work across all the major carriers here in the U.S., for example. We've reviewed a bunch of them over the years, and it's nice to see them taking this step as well for folks that have the aptitude and ability to fix a phone or a desire to develop that aptitude uh, to be able to get real parts to fix their phones. It's not so hard to do here, and it looks like they've developed a great partnership with iFixit here to do just that. Another piece of good news for those of you who like to repair your own stuff is that uh, the federal government here in the U.S. says it is not illegal to hack the DRM to repair a product. So as we know, a lot of products like Apple and others uh, have digital rights management on the hardware itself. So if you were trying to swap out parts or something, uh, many times you can't do it because it's copy protected and encrypted. Uh, This law says that you can hack the DRM, which is normally illegal to do under the DMCA, provided you're doing it to repair your own device and you're just trying to get it back to its original factory condition, essentially. Uh, So it doesn't, though, make it illegal for companies to put copy protection on things. So the cat and mouse game will continue. But at least in this instance, you're not breaking the law, uh, trying to repair products by breaking DRM to do it. So that's a nice development there. It doesn't go as far as everybody would like, of course, but this is a step in the right direction. Uh, Here in the U.S., the Library of Congress uh, makes these determinations at the regulatory level. So this doesn't require Congress to do anything. They're interpreting the law and here they've interpreted it to, be, to mean that uh, you can fix your stuff and bypass DRM to do it. A uh, similar ruling was made by the Library of Congress about video games. And what happens, of course, with some of these modern games is that you might have a single-player game that has to log into a server in order for you to play it. Uh, they've declared that you can uh, break that DRM for the purposes of archiving provided you're not doing it over the internet. So uh, if you've got a museum, for example, and you want to demonstrate some games that maybe required some kind of server in the past to play, uh, you can now break that DRM, have that server running locally inside of your video game museum, 
but anyone who plays the game has to play it at your facility. You can't do it over the internet or anything like that. But for those who are uh, beginning to open up video game museums, this might be good news. Uh, John Hancock is looking to do that himself, actually. So this is something that might uh, benefit him in the future as some of our current games become retro games as the years progress. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in from Eric Ocha about the Mr. FPGA platform. He says, this needs more attention in the retro community. And I agree with him on that. Uh, so if you're not familiar with Mr., I think the first place to start is over at uh, Smoke Monster's YouTube channel, where he's got a great video that explains exactly what it is and what you need to get going with it. Uh, in a nutshell, this is an FPGA-based single board computing platform that allows you to simulate uh, original classic computers like the Apple II and the Macintosh and the Atari ST and the Amiga and many others, along with classic arcade games and classic game consoles. And what's different about this versus maybe a cheaper Raspberry Pi is that all of this stuff is getting replicated in hardware. Uh, FPGA chips are very special chips because they can be programmed to behave like other processors. So for example, you're trying to replicate the Sega Genesis uh, the 68000 chip is replicated inside that FPGA chip. They take all the other chips the Genesis had, including the sound chip and the uh, Z80 coprocessor. All that stuff is replicated. And everything inside the FPGA communicates with each other exactly the way the original hardware did, but then it's outputting via HDMI. So you're getting a very good, clean picture with minimal latency because you are essentially doing all this in hardware versus having things interpreted in software like we see with emulation. Uh, Analog does this on their uh, classic game consoles like the NT Mini we reviewed last year and the Super NT, which is the Super Nintendo console we reviewed this year. Uh, it is tremendously accurate and you notice the difference over emulation immediately and you can never go back again. So now this is a project that's open source, uh, not all that expensive to get started and Definitely worth taking a look at if you are uh, really a big fan of emulation and tweaking things on some of this kind of uh, community-supported hardware. I also suggest taking a, taking a look at ETA Prime's uh, YouTube channel because he's got a, a video about some of the classic consoles that he's been able to get working on his mister. And the hardware here is a little tricky because you have to get this development board. Uh, this is the DE10 Nano that I am having delivered today. Uh, this is the first component of it. Uh, Smoke Monster says, though, you can do a lot just with this board. So there's something you can do right out of the gate, uh, buying this $130 board uh, from Terrasic to get things started. But there's other components, like you saw in that stack on ETA Prime's thumbnail here, that you also have to get to get full compatibility. So some of the computers that you might want to replicate uh, require some additional things. And all of that stuff you can get uh, information on in Smoke Monster's original video there. So there are some community-developed pieces of hardware that attach uh, to this commercially available development board. And when you have all those things together, you have the full Mister. But again, you can get started with Mister just with the board, uh, which is what I'm going to do. In fact, my first video on this will be about what you can do just with the board uh, because the development components that go to it are a little harder to get at the moment. Uh, there's also a great uh, wiki on uh, GitHub called the Mr. Wiki, appropriately so. Uh, so you can get more information about all the stuff you need there as well if you prefer to read about it. 
and you can also get a list of all the things that you can run on Mr. Right now. So the list is growing every day. Uh, in many ways, this kind of reminds me of the early days of MAME and some of the glory days of the uh, emulation boom of the late 90s when all this innovation was happening in the open source community so quickly. Uh, so you can see all the things that it runs at the time I'm shooting this video. Uh, next week, it'll probably be even more stuff, and the things it does run now will run better. Uh, so this is a very active project, and it's getting a lot of attention. So if you are into this kind of thing and love tweaking things and trying to get uh, these projects to work, this is definitely something worth checking out, and I certainly will be doing it over the next couple of weeks as well. And this next question comes in from Coke Fudge, but it reflects a, a couple of comments I got from some other viewers about the new YouTube premieres feature. Uh, what this does is it lets you upload a video, schedule it, but then have it release out as a live stream for its first viewing, which means that everyone who watches it is watching it together. It's a shared experience, and it works just like a live stream, but it's pre-recorded content. Uh, and here's an example of uh, what it looked like when we were doing the wrap-up last week. So what happens is it plays it out. Uh, we're all watching it together, which I think is an awesome thing to have that shared experience. And then there's a chat running, just like it does on a live stream. And I'm participating in the chat with everyone versus participating on video, because, of course, the video is recorded. Uh, and I think it's a great way to connect with viewers. It didn't really change the uh, watch time or the viewership numbers on the wrap-up. Some YouTube creators have said it does better for them releasing it in this way. Uh, but I like this, the ability to interact with all of you when it first goes up. Uh, and then after that, it just is treated like any other uh, regular video. But you do have the ability to show the chat replay uh, to see exactly what we were talking about at the time. So this is kind of a fun thing to do. I like the notion of shared experience because it's something we've lost as uh, TV went from a largely live kind of experience to something now that's mostly on demand. And YouTube, of course, always has been an on-demand platform. But this kind of bridges that gap a little bit where you've got a scheduled time, you can all watch together, interact, and then it's just treated as an on-demand video after that. I think Twitch did this first, but now YouTube is doing it. Facebook's got a version of it as well, and I think it's a great way for the community to connect with each other, and I'll keep doing it uh, whenever I have time to join all of you in a chat. And I wanted to post a couple of questions that are a follow-up to my adventures with Comcast's Gigabit Pro service. As we talked about last week, I'm not able to get it here at my house, unfortunately. They thought I could initially, but when they actually did the physical site survey, it was out of scope. Uh, so that is it. That process is now done, uh, and I'm stuck with my 12 megabits per second upload speed for at least the foreseeable future. Uh, a bunch of you, though, wrote in asking if I might want to look at doing a bonded network connection where I bring in an additional uh, line from Comcast and then double up the upstream connection. I could do that, but I think I'd be paying a lot of money to get very little. Uh, because my upload speed is so minimal right now at 12, uh, paying another 100 or so dollars a month to go to 20 just didn't seem all that worth it to me. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just kind of hold out until they get my uh, regular uh, Doxis 3.1 gigabit service working here. Uh, that will get me up to 35 megabits in the upstream direction, which is a step in the right direction, but not as fast as I would like it to be, but I'll, I'll take it. Three times faster is better than nothing. So hopefully soon uh, we will get that in-house here and we'll be uh, ready to go with that. Uh, Bryce Holland also wrote in saying, hey, if 300 by 12 service is offered, which is what I have, why can't they just split the difference and offer 150 by 150? 
And cable doesn't work the same way that fiber does in that upstream is a lot more difficult on cable networks than it is on a fiber network, for example, because of how cable works. So typically in a uh, local uh, coax cable system, you've got fiber optic going to a node, uh, which then converts the fiber optic out to coax, which then runs to customers' homes. And usually off one of those nodes is a whole neighborhood or more of houses. A lot of customers are on that, and everyone's sharing basically these analog coax cables for uh, sending their data back. It's a more complex way of doing uh, data transmission because you can't have people transmitting at the same time. It's a little more of a different technology than the downstream is because essentially with downstream is that everybody's cable modem is getting all the data flowing through, but your cable modem is only listening for the stuff that's directed to it. Upstream is tougher, again, because everyone has to communicate at specific times and uh, interference comes into play and everything else. So this is my uh, diagnostic screen from my modem here. I've got 28 bonded downstream channels right now, so that's how they're able to deliver the bandwidth to me. They're just designated a lot of frequency on the wire for that. Uh, but there are only four upstream channels on my particular cable service. I think DOCSIS 3.0, which I'm using, uh, allows for maybe 100 megabits upstream theoretically, uh, but they're only enabling 10 or 12 where I am, uh, just given probably how they have built out and engineered the network. And you'll also see here that it's got something called ATDMA for the channel type. And what this is, it's called time division multiple access. And I'm probably gonna get some of this wrong. I'm sure some network person will correct me here, but generally what happens is, is that uh, each cable modem has to wait for its turn to transmit so there's no collisions on this analog wire moving through. Uh, so that adds some complexity, uh, again, on the upstream that makes the upstream process a different kind of technology versus the other. But this is all I get for upstream bonded channels, which is why it's as slow as it is. So the bottom line for me at the moment is that we're going to be stuck at 10 or 12 megabits per second until I get the new Comcast gigabit service. That'll bring us up to 35. Not as good as the two gigabits I would have had with Gigabit Pro, but close enough, I guess, for now. I have no other choices. Uh, my Q&A for you this week is what are you getting out of your cable modem upstream speed? Some folks have written in about their fiber optic speed. I'd love to just see if other folks working with coax have been able to get anything beyond maybe 30 megabits per second, uh, which is about the max that I've seen offered by Comcast Business. Uh, let me know down in the comments below what you're getting on your coax cable. And our channel of the week this week is the Retro Knots. It's a podcast that I believe began its life on OneUp.com many, many years ago, and this is its latest iteration. Uh, they take a deep dive into uh, retro games and franchises and kind of cover the history and the gameplay aspects of them and a very good listen. It's very well organized and they do a very nice job uh, covering what they do. I'm in the middle of their uh, Double Dragon retrospective right now and it's been a fun listen. So check it out, Retronauts, at the link you see on screen. So this week we got a couple of fun things planned. We're going to do a little DIY project, a build-your-own portable SSD that's powered by an NVMe drive. A bunch of folks wrote in after my Samsung X5 portable Thunderbolt drive review to, th to ask if you could do this yourself for less money. Uh, the answer is yes. It's not Thunderbolt, but it is Gen 2 USB uh, 3.1. So we should see some pretty decent speeds out of this. And I think from the price point, when you assemble all the pieces together, uh, you could probably get one of these running faster than some of the pre-built portable SSDs that are out there for less money. So we'll see how this comes together. And uh, we'll be doing a little bit on that tomorrow or Wednesday. We're going to have my monthly sponsored Plex video. I think I'm going to focus on podcasts this month. They've improved it. 
and we haven't really covered this feature yet, so that's going to be on the docket uh, for Plex. I would love to get some suggestions from you. I've been collecting them. Uh, some suggestions from you uh, for future Plex videos. We've covered a lot of different Plex features, but there's probably some things that you want to learn more about. Uh, let me know down in the comments, and I'll add it to my list of things to cover on Plex. Uh, we also have that new Lenovo uh, all-in-one or two-in-one uh, with the pen built in, the C930. We're going to be getting that review done this week as well. And I'm hoping to get to the Neo Geo thing. I haven't unboxed it yet, so be on the lookout for that on the Extras channel. Uh, we'll look and see how this little portable arcade thing works and see if it's worth buying. And I still have that short throw projector that I need to get to, which I hope to get to very shortly. If you want to help the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or one-time contribution to the channel. All the different options that are available to you, you can find there. Uh, we also have our ongoing relationship with Plex. So if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission. We get a larger commission if you sign up for a Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else at the links that you can see on screen. We can be found on other channels too, my extras channel, which has supplementary content like that unboxing and setup video for the Cavo. That's the kind of stuff we do on the extras channel, so you can check that out. Uh, the podcast has audio versions of this show that you can download to your favorite podcatching application. The snippets channel that we talked about earlier has search-friendly snippets of what you see on uh, this show every week. And then we have my live stream channel, which is basically an archive of all the live streams that I have done. I haven't done one in a while, but I will be doing some more in the very near future. That Mr. Thing is going to be a fun one to uh, do some live streaming with. And if you want to get notified whenever I do anything, click on that bell so you get notified whenever I upload new content. Otherwise, the YouTube algorithm will decide what you want to see. So if you really want to see everything I do, uh, click that bell. I'm also thinking about setting up an automated email uh, list based on each of the master playlists that I have. So that's something I'm exploring as well. So if you're interested in an email that would notify you, do let me know and I'll try to put something together. You can engage with the channel on my email list at lon.tv email. We email very infrequently on that one. The Facebook page is at lon.tv Facebook where we post a lot of video content now as well. The Facebook group, which is growing every day, is at lon.tv slash Facebook group, where you can interact with uh, me and other viewers of the show. And we have the store at lon.tv slash store, where you can buy some items that I have previously uh, purchased to review here on the channel and I'm now getting rid of. Uh, that Amazon Fire HD 8 tablet is there, so you can check it out if you're looking for a good deal on that tablet. So have at it. And if you uh, want to get notified whenever I add anything to the store, you can sign up for an email alert that you see on screen, which will go out every time something gets added. And that's going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you, as always, for your continued viewership and support. Keep those comments and suggestions coming, and uh, we'll be back this week with a lot more stuff. Until next time, this is Lon Seibin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast. Tom Albrecht. Too Much Sauce. Gerard Newberg. And Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv support to learn more.
And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.